and uh, and and Tim and Peyton, you obviously know from our dealings with the conference. And uh, Tim Sprunt also works with us at AEI. Yes, I know. Oh, okay. All right, there you go. All right, excellent. All right, guys. I'll um I'll send a message in the chat when we're ready. Okay. All right. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, my name is Ian Rowe, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. Nike, it's great to see you. Happy New Year. Just lots of great opportunity and hope for this uh, year 2022. And I'm very excited to share that part of that hope and energy is driven by our guest, uh, Shelby Steele, Dr. Shelby Steele, who has been a hero of mine for, gosh, at least, I won't even say, a long time. <laughs> and uh, Shelby, it's great to see you. For our audience that hasn't seen the work of uh, Shelby Steele, he's written some seminal books, certainly one of the the books that had the great, a great influence on my thinking, uh, the content of our character, actually so much that I actually put the part of the epilogue of the content of our character in an invitation that I was having for a part because I thought, <laughs> I thought, I thought it was so insightful. I was that nerdy. But, uh, but Shelby is an author. He's a, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. He also works with the Claremont. Um, uh, uh, Institute, and and as many of our readers know, has been certainly one of the most widely cited um, authors and intellectuals on race, upward mobility, uh, what it even means to be an American in this country. So, Dr. Steele, great, great to have you. Well, thanks so much for that uh, that 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 warm introduction. It's good to be here. Yes. Well, you know, we, we like to start off um, each episode by just asking a, a question about, you know, before Shelby Steele was Shelby Steele, you know, when you were a young person growing up and uh, sort of making your own way in the world, did you have any experiences or an experience, you know, likely related to race that helped you realize, you know what, race may be a thing, but it's not the thing. And that I, I have opportunity uh, in this world and in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I have to, I suppose, confess. Um, yes, I, I had so, something like that, experiences like that, uh, because of my, my two parents. Uh, I was born, they, they, they met and uh, fell in love and married in the civil rights movement in the early 1940s in Chicago. And uh, so, and they were founding members of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, okay. um, all their lives. And um, so I, I was what they call a CORE baby. <laughs> uh, the, the the whole community of people in Chicago who who were um, a part of CORE and related to it in one way or another sort of formed a community there 
And um, so I, I sort of grew up um, uh, in the milieu of civil rights. And I can remember family dinners when the Montgomery boycotts broke out and courts sent people down to, to Montgomery to, to make sure that uh, this young whippersnapper, Martin Luther King, knew what he was doing and wow. knew how to conduct a, 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 a demonstration on that scale. Uh, <laughs> he soon proved wow. himself. Uh, <laughs> did okay uh, in the long run. But, but again, that was, so around the dinner table, my whole life was, race was talked about openly and, and debated in every, every position imaginable. Um, by the time I was eight or nine, I was good and tired of it. Uh, actually, and, and uh, I would be, uh, my father would drag us all out to the demonstrations, you know, when they demonstrated lunch counters and Walgreens and so forth, we would, we'd, we'd be there. And uh, wow. so, so I, I knew that, that movement, knew the people, James Farmer was a family friend uh, and, and, and so forth. So I had a, I had a real, uh, advantage, I suppose, in that sense. I, and I felt it that way at the time. Other people were sort of perplexed and things were, um, but, you know, I, I, re I remember we talked about that two years ago around the table and, and uh, we solved that problem. Um, so I, I just had that, uh, it was that kind of knowledge and experience at that time in America set you apart, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively. Um, but, uh, again, it was something I was born into, thought about, read about. I read James Baldwin in, in the sixth, seventh grade, um, and, you know, new black writers and, and so forth. So, um, I like to think it, 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 some, it was sort of in college where I, I sort of broke away and took, took my own road for a while and, um, that, that, that was certainly part of my background, but, um, I tried out black power, became a, a cultural nationalist. Uh, I loved the black Panthers. I went to Algeria and spent some time with them, uh, in, in Algeria and, uh, uh, got to know them. And, and I was totally fascinated by somebody who had a diff a, a different point of view than, the classic Martin Luther King civil rights point of view, which was based in Christianity and the idea that that uh, God loved all his, all of His children the same, and and uh, race was something we had to overcome. Uh, it's it not something we we should live with or accommodate. Um, and then all of a sudden, here were a group of in 1965 or so of black militant young people saying the phrase black power. And I, I can remember my father asking me, well, what, what do they mean, black? What, what, what do you, what, what's that? Could that be? Uh, well, it, it evolved from there. Um, and I was reluctant at first, but I, I, I sort of dove in for a little bit and to, to really see whether, what, what was happening there. And, and uh, it's taken me, I think, a lifetime um, to truly understand what what happened there, wow. but uh, at any case, I was I was intellectually engrossed 
at a very early age in the debate, in the uh, back and forth. You mentioned Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Oh, I love that debate. And Malcolm X remains for me um, a towering figure. Much his death was 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 just a real tragedy, a real loss. He was somebody who was in the process of growing and expanding and. It looked like he and King were going to have, were going to find a common ground, and then sadly we we lost them both. Uh, and I don't think we've been the same since. Wow! But that's a little bit about how I got I got started. Yeah, Doctor Steele. You know, one of the things I got from one of your other uh, educational projects was that your dad. And I could be wrong, but but I think had a, a formal education of basically elementary school. Is that, is that correct? Third grade. Third grade. So I have to ask the question, how does a man and his wife, a gentleman with a third grade education, produce not one, but two of the great intellectuals of America? Two PhDs. I mean, to me, it's like Richard Williams with Serena and Venus. How do you... How do you produce that kind of quality from, you know, what you were handed? I just, I would love some perspective on that because it's, it's really quite an accomplishment. Well, especially two that are so ideologically, um, uh, well, I'll let you, you, I'll let you describe it, but my, my sense is not 100% ideological alignment between those two. <laughs> uh, that's probably an understatement. <laughs> Um, well, no, my, my father was an exceptional man. Um, uh, he, he's uh, just one of the greatest people I've ever known who, he had, a th again, a third grade education, came from the South, um, taught himself to read and to write, uh, and read a great deal. He was the intellectual in the family, <laughs> though my mother was a, had a master's degree from the University of Chicago. Uh, and they, they were quite a pair. I mean, they, they read everything, they studied everything. They, uh, and so again, it was their involvement made, made it exciting for us kids. And we knew in a sense that we were, at least in that family situation, a part of the, the, the society's hope for a better day racially for a day when race didn't hold people back. When I grew up, we still had segregation everywhere. Um, and so there, so I sort of sensed from early on that they wanted us to do really well, not just to, for us to do really well, but to make the point that blacks uh, uh, could overcome and could, could uh, do great things in life if they had themselves the right attitudes and if they had the chance to do it. Um, so that, that uh, I, I knew that I, if I didn't do something, uh, at least graduate from college, I would be really just, I'd break their heart and I didn't want to do that. Wow. So Shelby- I, I think that's a good thing for, for, for parents to do with their kids. Um, for, to, to make, you know, I do that with my own. That, you know, you do have an obligation to do something with yourself that's that's unique to you, and um, you, you have to live up to that. 
So, so Shelby, in the early stages of the civil rights movement, that it sounds like you grew up in, the 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 message was we shall overcome, and a lot was driven by black people themselves fighting for dignity, empowerment, agency. You know, our own our own destiny to um, control our own futures. And yet there's been a shift, and you've written about this a lot, this whole idea of, of white guilt now being a force that in some ways sustains uh, this movement. So I'd love for you to just talk about what do you mean by white guilt? How has that evolved over the last few decades? And, and, and what role does it play now in terms of the next stage for the Black community? Well, I think, I think white guilt is the most powerful social force we, in, at this point, Western culture. Um, and if you think about it, the source of it is, is pretty obvious. Um, four centuries of, the, of oppression, of slavery, of segregation, discrimination, of brutalizing, of murdering, of dehumanizing, um, oppression that was that white America, if they didn't participate in it actively, they tolerated it. Um, it's just simply not true that you know you were uh, you you didn't know this was going on. It was everywhere self-evident, um, and uh, it is a crime beyond imagination. Is we'll never, I think, be able to articulate clearly the scope of the evil of what was perpetrated against black Americans. Of course, across the Western world, colonialism was same thing in other, in other places, Africa and so forth. Um, but that, that evil sits, you know, sort of in tandem with Western civilization the greatest flowering of the human spirit ever. And yet here's this, this evil, and there, there, there is no other word for it. It is an evil. Um, and that, that is, uh, so you're, you're white today in America, and you, that's your past. That's a part of the past, and everybody knows it. America, bravely, to its great eternal credit, confessed in the 60s to having done this, having lived this way. Um, and so uh, America in the 60s became morally accountable for that history. And that accountability is the essence of white guilt. It, it means that you, you only have enough moral, you can't talk to me about race. And, uh, if you're white, you've got to somehow make it clear to me that you're not associated with that evil past. If you don't, I'll call you a racist. <clears throat> and then I take all the moral power uh, and, and you lose. <clears throat> so white since the 60s, when again, when America finally owned up to all of this, uh, uh, whites have been under this, this uh, have, have lived with this, what I call it a vulnerability. 
Uh, you can you can walk up to you can look at any you can hold this over the head of any white person you want if you want to do that, and they can't deny it because their countries is owned up to it. Well, that's the position that Black America has white America in. We they they had the power to dehumanize us. We now have the power uh, over them to get them to do all sorts of things that, that uh, we claim we want them to do, or we need them to do, or so forth. Right away after the signing of the Civil Rights Bill in 64, President Lyndon Johnson turns around, creates the Great Society, creates the War on Poverty, changed school busing, additional welfare payments, uh, I mean, on and on till today, we, it's clear that government has spent something, keep hearing different numbers, but, but in the trillions of dollars on, on social wealth, what's that about? Why are you giving that money to these, this <clears throat> in the name of black people? Well, because of what you did to them. And you can't have political legitimacy even if you don't acknowledge it, if you do. So what happens yesterday? Uh, President Biden says that, you know, you'll vote for this piece of leg garbage legislation that I want, because if you don't, you're gonna be like George Wallace. Oh my God. White people shudder. Um, they're being manipulated. That white guilt is, is, Biden is working that white guilt and saying, in order to redeem yourself from that shame, you have to pass this piece of legislation and, and, and basically do what I'm telling you to do. So white guilt is an enormous power. It's the power that came to black America in 1964 when America signed the Civil Rights Bill. We suddenly now could call the tune in many ways. Um, and the entire political left in America has identified with that power. Uh, and racism is the biggest weapon in left-wing politics. It's the most decisive um, weapon that the left has in, in American life. Well, it comes from white guilt. Uh, and, <clears throat> and, and the way that that power continues to thrive is to continue the narrative that all black people are continue are are in a continuous state of oppression right it's not just about the past it's about present day white guilt is is it's black suffering that that whites now use use to for their politics, for their their power, so they're 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 happy to see the more black suffering there is, then, then they can say that that's the more that's a that's old American racism, that's America's evil, and you better give us this piece of legislation, you better change your your school system in the following way, and you better do this and this way, and and uh, you look up and and we've got a border crisis, and you've got. <laughs> All sorts of things where the, that white guilt that has, has been the force behind them. Why do we tear down the border in, in, uh, in, in Mexico and allow uh, th hundreds of thousands of people to come across? And so, well, 
a country that was confident morally of itself would simply not do that. We're doing that because again, it, it's, it's, those people are power and, and uh, that's, their suffering is, uh, um, their suffering, white America can be, and this is the essence of, of modern liberalism, um, you have to be, oh gosh, <laughs> stepping on my own toes here. Um, but, but you have to, you, you have to prove somehow, you have to be repentant. Right. And you have to show deference to that, to the suffering of minority people. And you, and that redeems you. And so what the left is selling basically is redemption. We, you, you are either on the train of redemption and you're, you're paying off that, that, that evil that, that persisted for four centuries, or you're a racist. And uh, you, uh, you really secretly long for those old days of racism and segregation. And you're, you, you're taking the country uh, uh, backward. Well, again, white guilt is, uh, is, is exi insidious, but uh, it is, whites are the majority. Whites have the wealth. They have the resources. They have the government. They have private enterprise, uh, so forth. Um, and so they're used, and, and they have this guilt. And so they're happy to use that wealth to buy their way out of that guilt or to mm -hmm. save it. Well, then, then, let, then let's look at it another way, because despite all of this talk of white guilt and white oppression and white supremacy, there is still a thriving black middle class, upper middle class. And so I'm wondering what you think about the concept of black guilt that the community of black people who are thriving in this country, what role do we play in saying, while the country does have this tortured history, things are different today, and that opportunity does exist for many black people that it is not dependent upon white guilt. How, how, how do these, is, is that an appropriate, um, description of what's going on? I mean, it seems like a lot of black people could put this force of white guilt in check by actually acknowledging the progress that's been made. Yes, uh, but but uh, we have been, uh, what's the, the kind word I can use here? We, we've been, we've been bought off. White guilt is so powerful and it is so wealthy. That's where all the money is. That's where all the opportunities. So in, in beginning in the mid 60s, black America developed a politics based around basically shaking down the guilt of the larger society. What, is, what does the Democratic Party do? Does they ever say to black Americans, you know, it's time that we maybe take a little more responsibility for our own development? No. They say we live in a racist society and we have to have voter laws that protect us and, and, and uh, they go right back and shake down white guilt. 
And and if if you're if you're black who says you know I don't want to shake down white guilt I want to I want to make it on my own I'm I want to be the agent of my own fate no uh, if if you if you do as we prescribe we will we will see that you're taken care of um, and you're talking to a people that were oppressed for four centuries so is it who haven't had anything. Uh, and so it's quite understandable that, that Blacks have been reluctant. Uh, I, you're talking about Blacks who are, who are successful, who've done well no matter what. Uh, and yet they're, they're either ignored or they're put down. They're seen as Uncle Toms, as sellouts. Uh, so we, we're so adhered to th this white guilt as our source, our power, that it, it, uh, it cuts us off from our own power as, as human beings, as people. And we, we just sort of hang around and, and finding new and better ways to, uh, to scare whites into, into giving us one thing or another. Uh, it is a, it's a it's it's a tragedy that comes out of an interesting historical fact. Here you have a people who were who were oppressed for four centuries, living in the society that oppressed them, and then all of a sudden in the mid '60s, the society owns up to having oppressed them, and is now guilty in the face of them. This history is, we are all the children of history. This is what we're working out, we're negotiating. Um, we've gotten far, we've gotten to at least to the place where blacks are free. But we haven't gotten yet to the, to the place where blacks own themselves fully as human beings and as citizens of a great country. We haven't been able to get there yet. We've been, we've been symbiotically bound to each other. We're always just looking for leverage against whites. And whites are just always looking for leverage against the idea that they're racist. And they'll spend billions and billions, trillions of dollars to do that. Um, and, and we'll just sort of, I guess, go along for the ride. Um, but, but that's the... Part of the, again, my point is that part of this is the existential situation that we're in. Formerly oppressed people living in the same society that oppressed them. That's never happened before. Uh, and, and we're never in human affairs. Uh, so it's an interesting situation. It's an interesting fate. Uh, we, we have a long way to go. Um, because you're, we're, we're uh, asking Blacks, for example, to uh, take back their, their fate from whites and say, we're not going to put our, our uh, development, our, our uh, achievement in your hands. You can maybe you can shoehorn us into Harvard or Yale or Stanford or whatever. Um, but we won't be free until we earn our way in you know, by, through, through straight ahead, open competition with all other human beings in the world. 
all other groups. And you keep stealing that from us. And then telling us, patting us on the back and telling us that, that you're our best friend. And then doing the worst thing, telling us that you that we would never make it if it weren't for you and your goodwill. And we need your goodwill to get through the, I guess, to the end of the day. Um, well, isn't that a horrible? It duplicates. You know, they didn't, they didn't, they defeated the, they took the bodies of, of blacks and made them into slaves. Today we take their minds and their hearts. Uh, and you have a, a black bourgeoisie today that is militant, advocating a, a, a militant dependence, as though dependency was, was something to be proud of. Uh, and if white people will just give us more and take care of us more and, and so forth, uh, then we'll have justice. Well, you know, I, I reflect on going back to Ian's point about black guilt and your reference to President Biden. Of course, we, we all remember when he told us, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. black. Yeah, boy, that. George Wallace never said anything more insulting <laughs> to black people than that. <laughs> I'll tell you, I mean, think about the arrogance it takes to actually make that statement. Yeah. That's a level of self-delusion and arrogance that is is yeah. arguably unmatched. Yeah, yeah. So is that self-delusion of Joe Biden, or is it the self-delusion of the people who are voting? Because yeah, because I start, I start, Joe Biden. <laughs> say that again, Doctor Steele. It, 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 they voted for. They turned right around and and uh, and made Biden a credible, admirable. Figure somebody who cares about us. They bought this. Uh, and Biden was was Biden was saying, "I'm the redeemer of an inferior people. I am. I. Uh, and that's why you vote for me. If you don't vote for me, you're not black." <laughs> So what's the most promising thing you see um, within the black community that confronts that ideology? Um, that there is such a thing now that was never there when I was growing up and for many years after that, uh, there, there's there, uh, such a thing as a black conservative. Now that, that can mean all sorts of things. But one of the things it means is that I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own ship. Um, and the worst thing you can do is patronize me. You, you feed my fear. I have a normal fear because I come out of eight, four centuries of oppression, denied education. Denied, I've got all kinds of liabilities and weaknesses. You can't be oppressed for four centuries without that. But now you want to fix that for me. You want to take those problems, that underdevelopment, away from me and make it your problem. And all you're going to do, of course, is throw money at it, create a whole, as we have, a grievance industry, uh, which has corrupted a good portion of the black middle class uh, who lives off that, that, that money. Part of the problem that blacks have is that we live in such a wealthy country. 
Um, and when we were not given anything by the government, when I was a kid, uh, my father was a truck driver uh, and he would never, he, he'd die before he would move into a government housing project. Uh, they had, and, and it wasn't an unusual uh, feeling and many blacks felt that way then. Well, that's, that's where um, we, we, went, we went wrong. And we, we've, uh, we've been lost pretty much uh, since that time. So. Well, one of the things I find interesting um, is it seems to me in today's society, literally one individual can transform an entire organization or, or infrastructure. And the, the example I'll use, I don't know if you've been following it, but the transgender movement in women's athletics so there's a, there's a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania who up until 2019 was a man swimming on the men's team. Well, he decided, uh, I guess now she decided that he was no longer a man and was now a woman and basically was allowed to switch to the women's team. In, his first, in her first meet, he broke the swimmer broke the NCAA record in the 500 meters for women by 14 seconds. So literally this one individual by deciding he was no longer a male is basically destroying women at women's athletics at the college level. And my long winded point is how is it allowed that one person has become more important than the thousands of athletes that participate in women's sports in college? When did that happen? Well, it, again, I, I don't mean to oversimplify, but that, that is white guilt. Uh, because it, it wasn't that swimmer, uh, who, who, who knows who, who he really is as a human being. But it was all of the, the people in the university and in the broader society who are so desperate to show their repentance from racism, to show that they are not sexist, they are not racist, they are not bigoted people, that they're willing to go along with this blatant charade and pretend that somebody can be, <laughs> be born a male and, and become a female and then compete in women's sports and ruin the whole sport and, uh, and, and, and so forth, because they're saying that's how innocent we are. That's how free of, of bigotry we are, is that we, uh, we'll, let, we'll let this young man, uh, young whatever, <laughs> uh, whatever the politically correct uh, phrase is, we'll let him uh, win and take, and take away uh, a victory. And too bad for the girls. We'll sacrifice the girls for our innocence. And therefore, because, because in white guilt, innocence is power. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's no other reason to have it. We, uh, I'm innocent of racism. I'm innocent of sexism. Therefore, I deserve this and I deserve that. Uh, so it's a power move uh, always. So this is, a, this is a, I wish I could say it's an extreme example, but it's, it's uh it's not. It gets more commonplace. Uh, it's been happening in track and field for a long time. 
people overnight become women and and then then run <laughs> right i mean shelby and then and i was then... a swimmer in, in in i grew up as a swimmer and, and uh, uh so i i love that sport i identify with it and uh <laughs> but you know what, you know what 14 seconds represents that's a long that's a long way <laughs> that's a long way yeah yeah, it's in. Uh, what did you expect? You know, <laughs> I mean, it. It. Uh, what's what is amazing is not him, what and his audacity, but of all the people who went along with it. Yeah, that's the trouble. That's where the trouble trouble is. Is that you? You don't want to be the one who says this is ridiculous. This is is evil. How do you expect women to compete in the same in the exact same race and sport as men? Uh, there are some sports, I suppose, where that figure skating, maybe sure. that there's more inherent weight, physical strength means less. Uh, women have it, men have it. And, and, uh, but even there, women don't do the same kind of physical skating that men do. The, the, they don't reach the same height that men do. That they're women, they're female, uh, and to to get confused about that shows that our is a statement about where America's at. We're we're, lo we're losing common sense in order to to, to regain some of the innocence we lost by confessing to our our, our evil past. We're paying the, in other words, we're paying the bill today for that past. Mm. Um, these girls are paying the price for slavery, for segregation. <laughs> they're, they're paying it. They need to get a medal. <laughs> <laughs> so Shelby, you are someone who has taken the slings and arrows for saying the exact things that you're saying right now, for pointing out that this... I love the words you use, this blatant charade. But there are a lot of people who want to follow in your footsteps and yet they're cowering right now in fear. And it's not just on transgender, it's on race issues. I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones said, um, if you're a black person, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you get married, it doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you save. Nothing you can do can, quote, overcome 400 years of racialized plundering. Now, that comes as a surprise, first of all, to her own accountant, because she's done all of those things in her own life, right? <laughs> but the scores of Black people who've done all of those things and been successful, and yet they don't want to come out and call call that to account. What advice can you give for for these people who who know that it's a blatant charade? Who know that yes, there are issues, and we can talk about constructive strategies to uplift our community. But that kind of hopeless message. There are a lot of people whose own lives are demonstrated experience that it's not true, and yet there's a fear to even talk about it. Mm -hmm. I, I would ask them to stop being afraid of white guilt. Um, stop feeling as though 
but but more deeply than that, one of the things oppression does to a people is make them disbelieve in themselves. The world, if you're, if you're black, then you're a slave or you're segregated and so forth. The idea is that white people move the world, you don't. White people make things happen, you don't. The whole struggle we're in right now is to, I am a black conservative because I want black Americans to make themselves by their own lights, their own terms. Uh, to, to own their own, to pursue their own fate as they wish, as individual citizens of this great country. Uh, and do not allow, uh, we, and this is one thing we're going to have to struggle with, because, but we should not allow whites to just give us everything. When, when, lower standards for us across the board. All of that humiliates us and keeps communicating to black people, you can't do it on your own. You were inferior back when you were a slave, you're inferior today. Inferiority is the, the cloud that hangs over the head of black America. We're never gonna get over it until we become equal in fact, not equal just by claiming it, you don't go. You don't look at an NBA basketball game and say that you know that if, if the blacks would do this and so that. No, because they're so good. They're so excellent. Uh, so blatantly, it's, there's no there's the, the whites are the ones who need affirmative action in the NBA. Not to mention Asians and Hispanics. They all need they all need help because we have we would have to lower standards to be more inclusive of them. Well, it, it, we can see the absurdity of it there. Well, this, the same thing is true with 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 white guilt. We have to tell Mr. Biden, Mr. Biden, as Frederick Douglass said many uh, 150 years ago, leave us alone, <laughs> beat it. <laughs> uh, leave All us right. alone. We, we we will we'll take care. And and so then, if I get into Stanford or whatever, I can go out and stand on the campus of Stanford, look at myself there, and know in my soul that I got there honestly by meeting the same standards or surpassing them that many other whites uh, did not meet. There's no other way. There is no other way. I wish there was. We all, this is what most blacks say. Well, good Lord, we already suffered. We've, we've truly suffered. And there's even some, continues to be some suffering. But suffering doesn't mean anything until you, until you allow it to inform you. And we need to learn, we need to let this, our past inform us. You have to be a man in the old classic sense. You have to stand up. And if you don't stand up, you don't fool anybody. White people don't, they think less of the world. What do white people begin to say there? Yeah, look, we've done everything now. You begin to see in the white world a real exasperation. We've done, we've given you everything. You're the best schools, the best this, the best that you, you peep and we, we give. 
the one thing whites have never done is ask anything from us. They say, well, you have a problem in education, uh, you need to develop. And if you don't develop, we're not giving you any money. No, they, you don't develop, they give, they give you more money because of the guilt. They can't stand up, they can't support their own principles, their own standards of merit. And so the, the effect of that is to weaken the whole society. Whites are suffering too because of this. <clears throat> well, they now, uh, lower standards now apply for them. We, we're ruining our, our public education system this way. We're low, accommodating, being deferential, bending over backwards. Yep. Uh, and, you know, as, that's, as that stops, once again, we're going to be the ones left out. Well, my, my message to, to Blacks is that, is no, 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 don't, don't you, 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 you will not, you will not steal from me um, uh, what, what my achievements are. They let, they will be mine and I'll be responsible for doing better or not doing better, but it's on me. One of the, the sweet things, and this is just the irony of life, of oppression is that you're not responsible for yourself. We don't have a lot of uh, experience. That's one of the weaknesses that people uh, who, come, who come out of oppression have, is that they don't have a, the habit of being responsible for themselves. Uh, and that's something we have to really work on. Um, if, if we don't, we will, we will just be, continue to be dependent. And that's a difficult, difficult challenge. I mean, it's really difficult and it's scary. Uh, it's frightening. Uh, but that's what, that's the, the situation that history has put us in. All right. You know, one of the things I took away, Dr. Steele, from your most recent film, What Killed Michael Brown, was, in simple words, really the decline of black leadership. And when you just quoted Frederick Douglass, I was thinking, so he went from Frederick Douglass, you know, uh, Booker T and, and Marcus Garvey, and then Malcolm and Martin, and then it was Jesse Jackson, and then it was Al Sharpton. And now we've got BLM leadership. And those aren't our only leaders, but those are the leaders that, that white society has decided, you know, we should listen to. And it just seems like a, a march to zero in terms of the things that matter. That's a good, uh, a good way to put it, a march to zero. Because <laughs> uh, that, that is really exactly what it is. And, and uh, the people you're, you're mentioning, Mr. Sharpton, I'm, whom I know. Uh, and so th these, uh, these people are white guilt leaders. They don't lead black people. They don't care about black people uh, overcoming dependency. They're happy to see it because that means they'll get they'll get more money. Um, Jesse Jackson is, is who's I think the leader of the pack. Uh, I'm gonna know him, sweet man in many ways, but um, seduced by hundreds of millions of dollars of corporate money that was given to organizations he uh, was associated with. 
Uh, Al Sharpton is not as good with the money as Jesse Jesse was, but uh, there are countless others as well. Well, that becomes the 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 avenue that our our most talented people go down. Uh, and so, the, in other words, the thing, if you're black, the thing to do is get a hustle. Don't achieve anything. Get a hustle that's tied to white guilt, and you will thrive. And that you know, it's just it's 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 white guilt again, boy. If if if, if white said um, Al Sharpton, we're gonna leave you alone. Sharpton would then he'd really demonstrate. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 you know, and, but again, it is, and, and we to, to have leaders like that when we did have leaders like Martin Luther King, I don't know how much money he, the, the man made, but not as enough to, uh, to pay off of what he achieved. Uh, well, we, we know Martin had, excuse me, Malcolm had no money. Malcolm had absolutely, he was, he was poor. Um, Malcolm is the, is the one, uh, for me personally, just as an aside, uh, his whole commitment to self-help, mm -hmm. what I think the greatest message ever for Black Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, it, it's what, what aligns me with conservatism, because that's what conservatism, the free markets, and so that's what conservatism is all about. Uh, and and uh, is self-help. And Malcolm understood that um, his, his evolution intellectually was fascinating because he, he left the, the, uh, the Muslims and he became his own man, uh, but he clung to race. He, he clung to race. He, he was really the sort of first articulator of black power that, in other words, there's power in your identity as a black person. That's the great illusion of black power is that, oh, your identity, that's your energy, your power, your wealth. So be black, 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 super black. Malcolm finally at the very end of his life, just before he passed, finally saw through that illusion uh, and, and realized that we have after his trips to uh, to Muslim countries and, and to, to see Islam as it is really in a more higher form practiced. He understood race was, that was an American sickness. And he gave it up and started to talk in many ways like King, that let's move beyond race. It's not about race. It's, it's about becoming, creating a situation, a country in which you can have, people can have meaningful lives, no matter who they are. Uh, so I, I love Malcolm. He 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 was the one who finally brought the the desperate threads together, uh, and his death was was a real loss because he had so much credibility with blacks. Blacks sort of you could you could celebrate King in public, but you had you could only celebrate Malcolm in private. <laughs> he was a black conservative. He was he was he was a little too much, a little ahead of his time. I, I love what you just said, and it, it reminded me of a, a video interview with a woman who was probably in her 50s or 60s in Harlem. It was just after his assassination. And she said, it's, av it's as if my mother died today. Mm. And I just, God, tears in her eyes. Yeah. It's as if my mother died yeah. today when they yeah. killed Malcolm. 
but what you just articulated is ex exactly that feeling that people had for him. Yeah. Uh, well, it's an old story. People can be, you know, the, the assassination, the kill, kill off the king. Um, Malcolm scared that part of Black America that was corrupt, mm -hmm. that wanted to use our race as, as power to get ahead. Malcolm mm -hmm. finally, as long as he went with race, he was okay. He That's cut right. that cord That's right. and he had to go. Uh, he, he was, uh, uh, I remember I, I, many years ago, I wrote a, a paper against affirmative action and, and uh, a member of my family uh, uh, said, well, you've taken food off people's plates now. Wow. And uh, wow. You, you know, you can, you can say what you want, you know, maybe that's a cute idea, but you're taking food off people's plates. They're not going to love you. They're not going to blow kisses to you. In fact, she said to me, when I go to a party and your name comes up, people spit. <laughs> how do you, and how, they do. How do you endure that? How do you, how do you live through that and remain steadfast in the principles that you embody? I like myself for what I'm doing. I like myself for, for saying what I really, what I really believe. Uh, if I didn't, if I said something different, trying to keep, um, you know, and, and, and endear myself to the power structure, uh, I wouldn't like myself. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would wonder what my life was really all about. I don't have to do that because I'll tell you what my life is about. I, I, I'll, I'll put it out there. I, I have no, uh, uh, and so, you know, to live a, a sort of uh, ingrown wimpy life in order to get a higher check is not, isn't, is not for me. Uh, it, it, it is. And I, I think it, I think that that America is just simply, waiting for black America to stand up and take charge of themselves. Uh, and that we've, we've been slow to do that because the corrupt forces in society just keep buying us off. So wealthy, such a wealthy society, uh, just a vast wealth. Uh, and uh, it's, it's bought them a lot of time and it's caused us to lose time as blacks. Uh, and and to not believe in ourselves and so forth. So, so I I uh, I put it up with it. I put up uh, with it. Uh, I I have a certain pride that that I had to have to earn for that. And uh, uh, I I don't expect everybody else to do it. I, I, uh, uh, I that would be that would be vain. Uh, I take responsibility for myself. Uh, and I have to face the world as I believe I, I must. Yeah. Well, your steadfastness, believe me, it empowers a lot of people. Well, I, that, that's lovely to hear. <laughs> that's lovely now, to hear. Dr. Steele, I've got one more that I was thinking about. I actually talked to my son about it 
I wasn't sure if I was going to ask the question, but I really want to get your perspective on it. You know, as, as with the passing of Sidney Poitier, I reflected on a couple of things. And um, one of them was the relationship choices of black entertainers and black intellectuals. And I, I sort of reflected back when I was maybe 10 years old and I would open up Jet and I'd open up Ebony Magazine and I'd see these famous black people that I, you know, admired from afar. And quite often, you know, their mate would be a different race. And so Sidney Poitier, I think about, you know, Sidney and Diane Carroll were together for so many years, but then broke up and ended up marrying people of a different race. And I think about, you know, Barry Gordy and Diana Ross, you know, had a child together, but eventually broke up and married people of, of, of other, other races. And I, I think about, you know, a lot of black intellectuals by chance or not, they often, you know, marry people outside of the quote unquote uh, black race, I'll say to keep it simple. Do you think this is coincidence or is this part of, of something larger, some, some larger movement or set of ideals? I think all those people you just mentioned um, married people they fell in love with. Mm. And I, I don't think it goes an inch further than that. Mm. Uh, they, I don't, I don't know that Sydney, I didn't, I, I greatly admire Sydney Poitier, by the way. Uh, what a, what a hero he, he, he was and, and his contributions are indisputable. And he fell in love with a woman, he married her and they lived together happily to the, to the, to the end. Mm -hmm. uh, I make no bones, my, my mother was white. Um, mm -hmm. Not only was she white, but she, was a, she qualified as a DAR, daughter of the American Revolution. Wow. Uh, her, her forebears and therefore mine fought in the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, and she married my father, who was from Camp Nelson, Kentucky, and went to the third grade. And they were deeply in love and stayed together until death did them part. Uh, and uh, they loved each other. Just couldn't get enough of each other. Uh, well, what a blessing. What a role model they were for me. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I'm, I, I was, uh, I was, I was in, the, in the parent category, I was a really lucky guy. Um, and uh, boy, uh, the, the, I never knew what an interracial marriage was. I was 13, 12, 14 years old before I really, they were just mama and daddy to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I know the secret. See, I have a real secret because of my background. I know that people are just people. Mm -hmm. Love sometimes it. they're black, sometimes they're yellow, sometimes they can be all kinds of things. <laughs> sometimes they just knock you off your feet, you could fall in love. Other times you want to kill them. <laughs> uh, but people are just people and you see somebody's race, you does not mean you know that. You don't know that person. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Mike Nike, do you want to do the speed round real quick? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for that answer, Dr. Steele. That was, that was like everything you've said today, incredibly valuable. So uh, with each of our guests, uh, Dr. Steele, we, we have something we call the speed round, where I 
present uh, two individuals, two, two ideas, two philosophies, ask you to pick one and explain why. You have already answered the first question um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very powerful way. The first one is often, we often start with Malcolm or Martin. I'll give you the opportunity to maybe provide any additional context, but you've, you've given us pretty good clarity on that one. Well, I think there were two uh, great, great historical figures. Um, Martin Luther King achieved one thing that I think is absolutely uh, profound uh, and it came about because of all sorts of forces. Um, but he, I used the, the sort of make up a word, he moralized America's race problem. In other words, he reframed it in a moral way so that we, we, we could, America could no longer say, oh, this is just a custom we segregate. God wanted everybody to live with their own kind. It's not, it's not personal. We don't hate anybody. It's just we want separation is healthy. Well, all these, these rationalizations for oppressing people. Uh, and and uh, King made, it, it, was a, it was truly a religious movement. And, and it was based in Jesus Christ and, Barack and Mahatma Gandhi. And it was this idea that, no, no, the way you treat black people is evil. He put it in the context of good and evil, morality. It's not a custom, my friend. It's evil. What you're doing is evil. America denied that for four centuries. Oh, no. He said, no, it is. One day, John F. Kennedy, was, after he was elected president, got off an airplane, asked by something about civil rights by a reporter, and Kennedy's answer was, civil rights is a moral issue. Well, that was a profound historical turning for a white man, not to mention the president of the United States, to say is moral. The moment Kennedy said that, everything changed. Civil rights movement stopped being this sort of irrelevant backwater Southern thing and began to consume the whole country. And within, by 1964, we were signing a civil, civil rights bill that owned up to the evil of what America had done. Um, woo, was that, talk about an achievement. And therefore, things like the Constitution of the United States and so forth, they applied to black people because they were people were people. And it, for you to say that they're not is evil. Uh, so, so, so Martin was, uh, again, I, I came from an integrated church. We the first integrated church in Chicago and, and, uh, that was our, oh God, we, we, that was our philosophy. Uh, well, Malcolm was, was, was again, uh, uh, as I just talked about, uh, came at that, at the same, to the same conclusion, different way, but they were both, um, they changed the world. King, and, and believe me, you know, the revolutions around the world uh, mm. have, a, have a grounding uh, in the American Civil Rights uh, Revolution. Uh, 
again, it, it, it made it a moral issue and, and it opened up uh, therefore a whole uh, fount of power uh, in American life that had not been there before. Question uh, or a question two or scenario two, C civil rights or economic development? Uh, we have civil rights. It's a, we, we, that's an old, uh, an old victory. We, we won civil rights in 1964 in the fall when, when uh, President Johnson signed the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. After that came the, the, uh, the Voting Rights Act and then the open housing uh, and so forth. And, and in the law of the greatest nation in the world, the United States, written into the law, you cannot discriminate against me on the basis of my color. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. Uh, my color gives you no license to do anything at all. Whoa. Now, I'll give a whole lecture here, <laughs> but that's the moment we became free. That was freedom. There it was right there. So people say, well, it wasn't freedom. It's still discrimination all over the place. No, 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 no. There's discrimination today. But we are free. And if you discriminate against me, I'm going to get a settlement out of your, uh, from, from you that, that uh, I'll never have to work another day in my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to the cleaners. Please discriminate against me. Um, I, I, would do, I was discriminated against in the housing and when I went to graduate school, Salt Lake City, and I took, took the man to court, first uh, decision in the, uh, in, the Western, in, in the Western part of the United States. Well, the judge threw the book at the book at the guy and said, "You will, you, you uh, are an example of everything wrong with America. I'm going to fine you to the top, the, 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 as much as the law allows." And he did. And the city of Salt Lake City stopped it right away. They stopped discriminating against housing. It became a different place to live. People who came there, as I did, to go to graduate school. People who came after me. Never ran into that problem. Lived wherever they wanted to. Well, that's freedom, and that's what. That's but we again we we were afraid of it, and we didn't believe in ourselves enough, and we, uh, you know, we let ourselves be persuaded by by all sorts of of corruptions. And so we're farther behind whites today than we were in 1964 when we when we got free. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's an, an interesting enigma to me, uh, uh, how freedom works. The first thing you do when you get freedom is deny you got it. <laughs> uh, and so right away, 1964, the black movement, black power movement starts up and says, oh no, racism is horrible. It's, it's, it's everywhere. And it's uh, because now you can get you could shake down America. Uh, today we have the, the same thing with systemic racism. So oh, it's not just isolated, it's systemic, it's everywhere, and therefore you owe me, you owe me, you owe me. Um, and uh, so we're just, we just, we can't seem to break these, these, uh, these I, the, the, habits. 
The last one is uh, South Side of Chicago or Harlem, New York. Well, I'm South Side boy. <laughs> uh, I, I, I love the I loved uh, the Chicago I grew up in. Uh, discovered jazz. I'm a jazz nut. Don't get me started there. Um, I love jazz. I think it's what the highest art form there there is. I think it it comes. It's a, a blending of civilizations of cultures, um, and it it it's it's wide open. It continues to grow um, and expand. Uh, and I would sneak into the nightclubs in Chicago, the birds, the robins' nest on College Grove, and. And when I was underage and the doorman, uh, I got to know him, he liked me. So he put me at the, a back table by myself and, and, and give me, make sure I only got to drink orange juice. <laughs> and I sit there and listen to Ramsey Lewis all night. Uh, and uh, it was just, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful, Chicago wonder, was a wonderful city. Uh, it's obviously got its troubles today, uh, but, but uh, now later on, I, I spent time in New York, uh, uh, and uh, uh, but it has a New York has a bigger sort of jazz scene, but not it didn't you don't quite have the same intimacy as as we did in Chicago. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Well, uh, Doctor Steele, this has been an incredible conversation, we, but we can't have you leave without. Uh, providing advice to our young man, Daryl, who maybe like you would, you know, who, who found a mentor who uh, allowed you to discover this, this art form. There are a lot of young kids out there and kids like Daryl, 16 year old, you know, black kid living in forgotten USA who, who is hearing a lot of messages about what his life is supposed to be. You know, if you listen to a lot of the current black leadership Daryl's got a very rough ho rough road to hoe. And I'm just curious what you would say to him. If you could talk to a young person right now, um, what would you say to Daryl? I would say two things. I would say, find out what you love. And after you do that and you get established, find out who you love and try to build a life with them. Find out who you love. Mm -hmm. as Not easy. <laughs> Neither one is easy, but uh, it seems to me that those are the challenges that uh, life presents us all with. Uh, your life is in your own hands, and, and uh, you're going to do well if you find out what it is that you love to do um, and that you feel like you must do and it uh, uh, satisfies you in some way. And then you find somebody who you can do it with, who can encourage you, who can help you uh, believe in yourself, who can be supportive and whom you can be return that uh, favor to. Uh, find what doing what you doing what you love with somebody you love. How does it get better than that? All right, it's a beautiful thing. Wow. Well. <laughs> Nike, this has been great. Dr. Steele, Shelby, thank you for just sharing 
your wisdom with us today and for everything that you've done for a very long period of time to inspire many people like me to become more confident in our belief and our in our ability to control our own destiny doesn't mean there aren't challenges but the ability to overcome and and your your force in that it's immeasurable thank you well, thank you, you, you gentlemen, so much. Uh, you certainly are, uh, I think, uh, living uh, examples of uh, certainly of everything I stand for, and, and it's uh, so uh, heartening to to see that and see your your focus. Hope hope uh, the message uh, gets out there. I'm sure it will, and, and I'm sure it will over time. Yeah, I'll just add to Ian's comments that I'll tell you what. You haven't lost a step, that's for doggone sure. Um, one, you look great, but even your articulation, your passion, your energy, your clarity of thought, exceptional. I mean, I hope we get another 60 years of that from you. Uh, and I just, all I can say is the same thing that Ian said, thank you, because you have touched the lives of so many people in such important ways. And we, we can never repay you back other than doing the thing you just said, which is to live that life. So thank you, Dr. Steele, for everything. Well, thank you. Thank you again for so much, so much for, for having me on, giving me, giving me this opportunity to, to uh, say what I think. Appreciate it more than I can say. All right. Thank you. Thank you.